This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is part one of our fully scriptural series. So to begin this uh, scripture series, I'm going to read an excerpt from a story by C.S. Lewis, which is fitting because many evangelicals consider him part of the canon of scripture. (laughs) I'm mostly joking about that. So in this story, uh, there is a lion named Aslan, and he's a Christ figure. And he's sending Jill and her friend Eustace to the land of Narnia to go rescue a lost prince. And Jill responds, how am I to do this? I will tell you, child, said the lion. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. And then he gives her four signs that she must know and then also do what they say. He explains it. And then as the lion seemed to have finished, Jill thought she should say something. So she said, thank you very much, I see. Child, said Aslan, in a gentler voice than he had yet used. Perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. But the first step is to remember. Repeat to me in order the four signs. Jill tried and didn't get them quite right. So the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again till she could say them perfectly. He was very patient over this, so that when it was done, Jill plucked up the courage to ask, Please, how am I to get to Narnia? On my breath, said the lion. Stand still, and in a moment I will blow. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning, and when you lie down at night, and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. You want me to keep reading, I know. Uh, the story is an allegory. The things in that story correspond to things in this world. So Aslan is like Jesus, and I'm pretty sure that the signs are meant to be our scriptures. Lewis even uses language reminiscent of Deuteronomy 6 when the Lord tells the people of Israel, say them when you rise, say them when you go to sleep at night, write them on your doorposts, talk about them when you go out and when you come in. So turn in your Bible or your bulletin to Hebrews. That's our lesson for today. Chapter 4, and let's go right to verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The author of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he calls the Word of God alive and working. To know why he does that, we actually have to back up and and see what's happening in this whole passage. Now, this section of the letter to the Hebrews actually doesn't start where our passage printed in your bulletin starts. 
Your passage starts in the middle of chapter 4, but this section actually begins about in the middle of chapter 3, and so as we go, I'll be referring to parts of the Bible that aren't printed in your bulletin. Um, Stuart's going to say more about this in a moment. It's, it's why we are encouraging even more uh, from now on to start bringing your Bibles. We'll have Bibles in the pews as well. So this whole section, from the middle of chapter 3 up to where um, our part is printed, it's about entering God's rest. And in the background, the writer of Hebrews is using the story of the Israelites journeying through the desert on their way to the promised land. And he equates entering the promised land with entering God's rest. Those two are the same thing for him. And he says, in the desert, those who heard God's voice and believed entered the promised land. Those who heard God's voice but did not believe and instead hardened their hearts, they did not enter the promised land. So that story is is the background. It's the backdrop. And in the foreground, the writer of Hebrews is saying, there is another promised land. There is another rest. The ultimate meaning of entering God's rest is not about an earthly kingdom. It's about living with God forever in His eternal kingdom. So he says, look to verse 8 now. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Throughout this section of the letter to Hebrews, the writer is quoting the Scriptures. In fact, he's he's quoting very a lot from one particular passage. And it's not the Pentateuch, which is the place where the story of Israel in the desert is actually recorded. Instead, he's quoting from Psalm 95, which was written by David about 400 years after the Israelites were wandering in the desert. So now look at verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the third time he quotes that verse from Psalm 95. The first two times are in the section that's not printed in your bulletin. And there he gives the full uh, verse that's actually, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And for you Star Wars fans, just a note, the rebellion is not a good thing. I know in Star Wars, the rebellion, they're the good guys. Not here. Rebellion, bad. He says, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. So what we have going on here is there are four layers at work as we come to this Scripture. The first layer is is you and me, us, as we're reading the Scripture this morning. And then there's the writer of Hebrews writing to his original audience. And in most times when we're working with the Bible, we've got those two layers, us who are reading it and the original author and his audience. But because the writer of Hebrews is quoting Scripture himself, there's actually a third layer. David, who's writing the psalm to his audience, But because David is talking about something that happened even earlier, there's a fourth layer, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. So there's us today, the writer of Hebrews uh, 2,000 years ago, David writing his psalm 1,000 years before that, and then the Israelites in the desert 400 years before that. So about 3,500 years all contained in these layers. And the reason the writer of Hebrews says the Word of God is living and active is because the Word that was there for the Israelites in the desert David was saying, that's a word we need to pay attention to 400 years later. And that the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, that's a word we need to pay attention to 1,000 years after David. And that I'm saying to you, this is a word we need to pay attention to 2,000 years later. The word is living. The promise 
that God made then is still alive and active now. An important side note, word and command are interchangeable. So when we read God's word, you can also think God's command, or when you hear about the Ten Commandments, you could also think God's ten words. So too with the promise. So word, command, promise. God's word is His command. It's also His promise, and this is what is living and active. But he's not actually referring to generally all the promises of God. He has one particular promise that he's thinking of, specifically, that he's talking about. Which one? Well, it's the one that he quotes from Psalm 95. So now look to verse 5. They shall not enter my rest. That's the promise he's talking about when he says the word or the promise of God is living and active. It's, it's for you today. Thanks. I'm really encouraged by that. <laughs> they shall not enter the rest. It's because in Psalm 95, the full verse is actually God saying, I promise they shall not enter my rest. So God literally makes a promise. But the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience, you may think that that promise and that warning was just for the generation in the wilderness who died in the wilderness and did not cross the Jordan. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, I'm telling you, that promise is for you today. What is the promise? God promises that if you harden your hearts, you will not enter God's rest, just as they did not. Now, normally we think of promises as happy things. But there is that side of it too. If you look in verse 1, actually, it, it's not printed in your bulletins, but in verse 1 he says, the promise of entering still stands for we who have believed enter that rest. So there's another side to that coin. And often this is how the words of God work. It's no coincidence that in verse 12, he compares it to a double-edged sword. Because what does a double-edged sword do? It cuts both ways. So when we say something cuts both ways, we mean, well, there's a positive side and, and there's a negative side. So like being tall. It means that I can reach things on the highest shelves without using a chair. But it also means that I look funny in normal clothing. <laughs> and Julie's shaking her head, yeah, that's the reason. <laughs> the double-edged word of God, there's a negative side, there's a positive side. There's a warning against one thing while there's an invitation toward another. And it's good news if you obey. It is bad news if you don't. And the promises of God have meaning for all subsequent generations. But the objection arises, how do words that were said so many thousands of years ago have meaning for us today? We are not recently escaped slaves from Egypt wandering in the Sinai Desert. Well, the writer of Hebrews actually shows us how to interpret these ancient stories. He says, in a spiritual sense, that's exactly where we are. Jesus, the new Moses, has just rescued us from the slavery of sin, death, and the devil. We are not yet to the promised land of the age to come, and this life is a passing through the wilderness. There is the promise for all generations that if we hold to faith, we shall enter. If we do not hold the faith, we shall not enter. So this is how we are to read the Bible. 
that the promises of God spoken to past generations are still alive and active. They mean something for us today. Yes, there's work to do on interpreting exactly what their meaning is, but they mean something for us today, and God is always faithful to keep His promises. But the more fundamental thing, as Aslan reminded us, first, you must know the signs. Then, you must remember them, which for us means reading them, reading the Scriptures. One of my most constant prayers for this church is simply that we would be a people of the Word. I pray it every day. Today, when you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. God is saying, listen to me, that it may go well with you. Earlier in verse 12 of chapter 3, so again, not printed in your bulletins, he says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he's saying that there are two things to watch out for that cause a hardening of the faith, a hardening of the heart, and cause us not to enter into the rest. He says it's unbelief and disobedience. So let's talk about unbelief. The mother of all doubt, the doubt from which all other doubts spring, is a twofold question. Is God good and are His commands trustworthy? Is God really good? Can I trust what He has said in His Word? From that fundamental doubt, all other doubts come. There's simply a variation on that theme. It was so in the very beginning when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and he, what did he do? He said, did God really say? And his work was to cast suspicion on the trustworthiness of God's command and of his goodness. Now, doubt is normal. All of us experience it. And oftentimes, just like for Adam and Eve, that doubt comes to us from someone else. It is someone else who sows the seeds of doubt, a friend making a comment, a teacher or a professor speaking false things, perhaps mixed with truth, something we read, and the seeds of doubt are sown. But like in the garden, I wonder if you know that you don't have to simply be a passive victim of those seeds of doubt that are sown. What did God do? He, he came to Adam and Eve and he said, who told you? that you were naked. And I want you to know today that when those doubts arise or when you begin to see there are seeds of doubt rising up, you don't have to just let them continue growing. You can actually doubt the doubt. You can be suspicious of suspicion. You can say, who told me that I was naked? Where did these doubts come from? And why should I trust that source? Often it works this way. This is how it worked for me when I was wrestling through doubts in a more significant way many years ago. You grow up and you're naive because you're young and you trust easily. Then you start to learn. You hear other people say things and suspicion and doubt begins to arise in your mind. But at some point, 
you make a choice. And not even when all the questions are answered. At some point you realize, this is just a matter of my will, saying, I choose to believe. And you say, I'm going to re-enter that naivete. As one 20th century thinker called it, a second naivete. Perhaps a little more seasoned for the journey. But coming back to that place of, I come to Jesus as a child, trusting in God's goodness, trusting in the trustworthiness of his commands. But at some point, you have to say, who told me I was naked? Where did these seeds of doubt come from? And why should I trust them? That's why the author of Hebrews says, take care that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart. As we were praying about this series earlier this week, Val had a prayer that I felt uh, was, was significant enough to share with you. And she said, I think there might be some in our church who, who those seeds of doubt have been sown and you've experienced it like a, a major rending of your, of your faith. It's earth shattering and you're worried you're going to lose your faith. But in actuality, the Lord wants to say, no, it was, it was a superficial scratch. It actually isn't that bad. And you're worried and you're shaking more than you need to be. And he's saying, come, let me heal that superficial scratch sown by someone else with an unthinking comment. Renounce doubt, renounce suspicion, repent of unbelief. Let me heal that superficial scratch. Yes, doubts will come. But it matters very much in what manner we receive them. Do we receive them as welcome guests to be entertained and fed? Do we receive them as, as new masters that we are obliged to serve? Or do we receive them as intruders in our house who have five seconds to explain what you're doing here before I call the police? Does all of this mean that it's wrong or there's something wrong with you if you're ever puzzled or troubled by the Scripture when you read it? Is that wrong, to be puzzled or troubled? Actually, no. It's probably the clearest sign that you're taking the Bible seriously. Sometimes we're puzzled by passages in the Bible because there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. And you have probably had this experience where you might read something that seems like it contradicts this thing over here, and these two ideas seem to be opposing each other, working against each other. But with a little more study, with a little more time, with talking to others who've also asked the same questions, you might find out, as I have time and time again, no, those things that seem to be working against each other are more like blades of a scissors that are working together. Looks like they're opposing, but they're actually not. They're working together, and that tension is necessary for the scissors to work. So when you're in a place where you're maybe in that confusion of this seems to be different from that, hold on. Stick with it you actually might be on the verge of a profound spiritual truth, a tension that's not meant to be resolved. Sometimes there are things that are, are, are baffling or we don't understand them simply because we just don't know enough. Can we say that? And a humble approach to passages that are confusing is to simply say, yeah, th there are a lot of things probably that I don't know that would maybe help me understand this better. And maybe at some point I will. Until then, I'll be patient and choose to trust. But sometimes we're troubled by passages in the Bible, not so much because they're hard to understand, but because they're hard to accept. We read it and we recognize this is challenging a deeply held assumption or belief or value that I thought was good, 
But if this scripture is true, the light of scripture is telling me that that value, that belief that I hold so tightly is not aligned with the kingdom of God. That's hard. Because in that moment, you recognize something in me has to die to be able to accept that and live according to that. I have to lose or let go of something that I don't want to lose or let go of. And I feel that to do so, I might be damaged or injured or hurt. And it brings us back to the fundamental doubt. Is God good? Can I trust these commands that I'm reading in order to submit to them? Submission to the word of God, complete surrender to the lordship of Jesus is most difficult precisely at this point. To say, maybe I'm wrong in what I've always believed about fill in the blank. Takes humility and trust. And it's why God says through the prophet Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Now, along with unbelief, the author of Hebrews says that disobedience is the other thing that causes a hardening of heart. And of course, they, they work together. As we disobey, it increases our unbelief, which makes us doubt the trustworthiness of God's commands, which makes us less likely to obey them. And that cycle continues. Think of it this way. Sometimes people say things like, I, I go to the Bible, I try to read it, but I don't, I don't get anything. Or I go to pray, I don't hear anything. God is, he's not speaking to me. And yet, God has spoken really clearly about certain things. Do this. Don't do this. He's really, really clear. And when we choose to do the thing he said, don't do that, or we choose not to do the thing that he's already clearly said, don't do that, it's like we turn down the volume knob on his voice every time. And then we go and we pray, and we wonder why we can't hear him. He's saying, well, because I've spoken clearly, and you weren't paying attention there. I was talking to our youth pastor, Will, a couple months back, and he said he was having a conversation with a friend of his from, from his childhood who grew up a Christian but gave up his faith, walked away from the faith. And as they were in the conversation, Will kind of realized there was an interesting timing. He said to his friend, isn't it interesting to you that you stopped believing in the resurrection of Jesus right at the same time you decided it was okay to sleep with your girlfriend? And his friend said, there's no connection. And we're saying to you, there absolutely is a connection. When we disobey, we turn down the volume makes it harder to believe. In my own season of, of mistrust and working through, can I trust the commands of God? It was tied to a season where I was walking in disobedience. There is simply no understanding of Scripture apart from obedience to it. So what does it look like to respond to God's voice in the Scriptures with a softened heart? Well, it looks like this. We come to the Bible with surrender and openness, saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And we read. Daily is the goal, to be in the Bible every day. And we don't read it like we read the newspapers, just skimming for the highlights. We read in a prayerful, reflective, responsive way. 
And after we read, we do what it says. And when that happens, God will speak to you. Sometimes he speaks directly. You read something that is, go do this. And you realize God is saying, I need to go do that. Or stop doing this. And you realize, I need to stop doing this. I was talking to a man who said, yeah, when I first came to the Lord, I was genuinely following the Lord, but I was also often getting drunk. And I I thought, he's saying, I thought it was a grace from God. I thought drunkenness was a grace. And then a friend pointed out Ephesians 5 that said, do not get drunk, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And he said, oh, okay. I just, I can't do that anymore. He's now a very Spirit-filled man who I respect deeply. But oftentimes, it isn't always that direct. Do this, don't do that. There's, there's more an indirect speaking of God, and, and it works kind of like this. Every time we come to the Bible, it's like God has a paintbrush in his hand, and there's this, at first, completely white canvas, and he makes a single brush stroke. The next day we come back, he makes another brush stroke. The next day we come back, one more. And over time, the canvas begins to fill with this picture of who God is, who he intends for me to be, what the world is like, both in its fallen state and as he wants it to be. And obedience in this way means over time more and more conforming our desires to that picture that is steadily being revealed before us, saying, I want to love what you love. I want to want what you want. That's transformation. Uh, This week, I I called up a man from a church, our church, who's someone I, I deeply respect for his uh, regular habit of reading the Bible. And, and I said to him, all right, you're a busy guy. You're an engineer. You've been in the marketplace for decades. You're a family man. How have you maintained your habit of reading the Bible? And the first thing he said, well, well hold on. You, you got to know that for me, the scriptures are a point of rest and equilibrium in the midst of a highly chaotic work environment. They're not for me just one more duty I need to attend to. They're my lifeline. They're my God-sanctioned escape. I usually read some psalms right before I go to bed. I sometimes listen to them on tape as I'm driving in the car. And he, he listed a bunch of different ways that he encounters the Word of God. And he said, in the marketplace, workers are constantly immersed in an ongoing competition to determine who's in charge, who has influence, who gets special perks. Reading the Bible regularly awards me the confident understanding that I'm not a slave to the systems of the world. I'm an ambassador of the one true king who has assured me victory in the things that really matter. I love that. Now, later in this series, we'll get very practical, and we'll actually go through more ways of reading, encountering, and interpreting the Bible. But as we're at the start of the series, and for a start, the clearest simplest action point that we can all take away is the goal to be reading our Bibles every day. To do that, we usually need some kind of routine, a time that consistently works, and a plan, some way that we're working through the Scriptures rather than just random, any, many, mighty, mo. Although I've I've had God speak to me remarkably in that way too. But as a rule, a consistent time and a consistent plan. Let's make it our goal to be in the Word every day. Let's make it our goal to be a people of the Word of God submitted to its authority. And let's remember what Jesus Aslan says. The signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look as you meet them there. 
That is why it is so important to know them by heart. Pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.